Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We have seen news across the Bloomberg terminal, it seems for years now, but maybe maybe even more so in 2019 about big job cuts across Wall Street and the city in London. But uh, there's indications that there might be pockets of growth, actually, and job growth in the financial services industry. To help us put it all in perspective, we welcome our good friend Yalman Onoran, senior finance writer for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Yalman, give us a sense of, again, we've seen a ton of reporting about job cuts, some Morgan Stanley news out this week. We heard Citi maybe doing some things. What's your reporting showing? So, you know, I, I, I try to look at their actual numbers at the end of every quarter, and I've been tracking this for about 12 years now, okay. since the crisis. I started the first job cuts uh, <laughs> spreadsheets uh, during the crisis because, it, you know, during the crisis, it was big. And a few years after our crisis, Europe went into crisis, and then they were big. Uh, but then it kind of started slowing down in the 13, 14, 15, um, started reversing in 16. Um, and, and I still look at the actual numbers of employees, the banks higher. And the last time I took was, looked was the middle of the year. And, and actually, several banks, they're up from where they were in, during the crisis. So in other words, they cut a big chunk, yep. then they started adding uh, JP Morgan is pretty much even, uh, BMP Paribas pretty much even, um, uh, and, and many banks after many years of cutting have stopped and started adding slowly, yep. not, not too much. But there are still those that need to keep cutting like Deutsche Bank. And if you look at today's story, the top bank cutting is Deutsche Bank. It's, it wants to cut 18,000. It also has a terrible record of job cuts. Deutsche has announced 10,000 job cuts three years ago. How many cut? Three. Okay. In three years. So, yep. so and they kept talking about that 10,000 <laughs> and they managed to cut three. Now they say 18. So with that same rate, maybe they'll cut five. <laughs> <That's> right, right. <laughs> if they can, they're, they're really bad. Unicredit, uh, which is the biggest Italian bank, uh, is also on the list. They, they said 8,000. They have a better record. They actually have cut a lot since the crisis. A lot of it is not necessarily in Italy, but Unicredit has also gotten out of countries where, where they just don't think they're core, it's their core business anymore. So uh, Italian and French banks have done that, um, getting out of markets that they don't think they really need to be in. Uh, and that reduces the headcount when you no longer don't have a subsidiary there. But Doce really has a terrible, terrible is it harder track record. For, I mean, as I understand it's harder for European banks to cut people than it is for U.S. banks, some of the laws over there. Is that a challenge Definitely. they find? Definitely. So, is it there is any way hard. to get it? I, I know like in Germany, when they were talking about maybe merging with Deutsche Bank with Commerce Bank, the big issue was how many employees of the merged bank would be cut. And that was one of the reasons I think that the- I mean, they have they have labor laws that are much tougher. Okay. Uh, France and Germany and Italy, they all have a tougher labor laws. Politically, it's very challenging. Um, I mean, Germany is the strongest economy in the world. How can you then go say I'm cutting thousands of jobs when you should be hiring thousands of people? Yet Germany is overbanked. It has too many banks. Yep. Um, Thirty percent of them should be shut down, and I've been saying this, you know, for about ten years now. Right. It, a whole chapter in my book <laughs> that came out in 2011 was about this, and and German um, advisors 
analysts, professors have been saying the same thing for 20 years, right. that they have too many banks, they need to cut them down, and they can't do it because politically, it's a rich, uh, economically doing great country, so they can't do it, so they, there's always pressure not to. So Germany, not just labor laws, but politics also works yep. against it. How about some of the big U.S. investment banks, the J.P. Morgans of the world, the, the banks of America? You know, as you walk on those trading floors, I grew up on a trading floor from a generation ago where they're just packed, massive floors, packed with people, people yelling, buying, selling, all kinds of stuff. You go on a trading floor today, it's a lot different. Way, way fewer people, I guess, replaced with technology. So if these U.S. investment banks and you're reporting are adding jobs, where are they? What kind of so what kind so of jobs? they are they are you're right trading floors are very quiet for one thing even if there are people they're using instant chat programs instead of yelling at each other right that yep. that is a big difference I remember the days when you could go and people were yelling but it's it's not it's been gone for a while uh, but they add they've been adding in many areas well for one thing banks need to invest in in programmers technology people right that's who what, can yeah, actually yep, do it yep. I mean and and technology has become so important to every industry including finance. Um, and to compete with all these uh, new uh, fintech companies that could be a threat to them, big banks have been buying those some of those companies, uh, really increasing the number of people who do technology for them so they can stay on top of the technology spectrum. And compliance has been a big right. boon for employment at, at Wall Street firms around the world, but especially U.S. firms under pressure from the Fed to comply with new regulations which were even harsher than the rest of the world added thousands and thousands of people to make sure compliance uh, was really tip top and now it is but and and maybe they've stopped hiring more but that really compensated for a lot of people who were leaving the trading rooms and, and other sales positions other things so those areas have have really um, made the difference Interesting. Uh, Yalman Anaran, thank you so much for your reporting here. Yalman is a senior finance writer for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, continues to be a big story uh, on Wall Street, the headcount issues when um, there's pressure on lower interest rates and, and on fees. Um, one of the areas, uh, you know, obviously that banks can look at is their uh, headcount. That is one of their biggest uh, costs, and it walks in and out of the door uh, every day, their biggest asset. So when there is fee pressure, we certainly see time and time again, the big investment banks, the big financial institutions uh, look to the headcount, none uh, you know, more so than in Europe, as Yalman was just reporting. Uh, Deutsche Bank, uh, you know, clearly it's been reported that they have a lot of cost cutting to do there. And again, they have to take a very hard look at headcount and we'll see how that plays out in 2020. Well, what a difference a year makes. You think back to a year ago, uh, almost to the day, markets were in a free fall, setting, uh, many setting lows on Christmas Eve. Compare that to this year, where most asset classes, certainly on the risky side, have put up some stellar, stellar performance. Let's get a sense, try to put all of that in perspective. We welcome our next guest, Jim Vogel. He's an interest rate strategist for FTN Financial, based in Memphis, Tennessee, joining us on the phone. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Help us you know, put into perspective what really the last 12 months have meant to the markets, starting with that free fall we saw back in, you know, almost a little more than a year ago to where we are today. How do you put that in perspective? 
Well, that was an enormous wake-up call, not only for investors, but also for the Federal Reserve. And so they responded almost immediately, and it really set the tone for all of 2019, where the Fed no longer was wed to a particular forecast, but was prepared to react throughout the year. It's interesting. So as we think about it here today, how would you characterize kind of where we are in terms of the economy, in terms of the interest rate environment? How constructive are you kind of on the markets here, given kind of this outperformance we've seen in, in 2019? Uh, we're looking for more of the same in particular. Um, the um, increases that we've seen in stocks should start moving to emerging market classes as well as the Fed and the other cent- large central banks stay on hold. That's very important. Meantime, we've got the possibility that, it, that long-term interest rates also stay within a band and that we don't get the kind of increase you would typically see as other risk assets begin to recover and continue to set new highs. It's interesting. You think you talk about emerging markets. It's, you know, it's still, I would say, a kind of an a sector, an asset class that a lot of folks are kind of split on. What makes you think about going that far out on the risk parameter, the risk curve, if you will, and, and think about emerging markets? The the reason to consider is that. Um, investors are too focused on uh, difficulties in individual markets and individual regions when they should be thinking about a five to six year horizon uh, that allows a look for those to begin to catch up, become less commodity dependent, become more uh, in terms of putting to work their uh, workforce uh, that's going to be prized as developed markets continue to see uh, a, a particular tight labor pool. How about the, It's interesting. We think about the bond market. Again, another asset class that in 2019 had just a fantastic uh, year. When we think about the credit markets, how do you think about allocation between perhaps investment grade, a uh, high yield, maybe even going out the you know kind of the leverage loan side of the business. We've got an awful lot of forecasts by people on Wall Street that the leverage loan market is going to get a little thinner in terms of performance this year as they again focus on specific assets. But overall, there's an awful lot of money still waiting to go into that market and find bargains as they can, and we think that provides support both for leverage loans and for high yield debt as well then investment grade is all going to be a question of supply. And right now, our forecasts are for modest growth in supply. But if we see large um, corporations tapping the market consistently, you'll see investment grade begin to widen. How about the municipal bond market? Just to take it one step further, there's a market where We've seen tremendous inflows of capital. We've seen, you know, you know, all in returns of you know approximately seven percent this year, which for the mini bond markets, fantastic here. Is that a healthy move for this market? Or do you think that market may have gotten a little bit ahead of itself? It's a little bit of head, but it's also it benefits an awful lot from uh, tax policy tax policy uncertainty in an election year, and we'll see that, of course, continue in 2020. And also, you've got an awful lot of domestic savings that wants to stay in fixed income because they realize that there's a poss- after the last couple of years there's a possibility that some of their big equity gains could pull back a little bit, and they want that core holding in fixed income as something of an anchor on the portfolio. And that just hasn't changed for municipals at all. 
and nor should it next year. So, Jim, you've been in the markets a long time. You've seen these cycles, uh, whether they're economic cycles and also political cycles. As you mentioned, uh, this is a presidential election year we're coming into. How are you kind of factoring that into kind of your view about how much risk you may want to take or what sectors you may want to have exposure to? Or do you just kind of play that out and really don't pay too much attention to the uh, political aspect? Well, the political aspect is important because right now the market's not focused on it. And if you look at 2019, it was a year when things sort of did not, things did definitely did not go to plan. But then we recovered with moves by the Fed, by the ECB, and then investors sort of recalibrated. One of the things that's difficult to recalibrate for are political surprises. And 2020 could bring that. And if it ends up where you have a Democrat in the White House and a Democrat um, uh, controlled Senate, then you've got the possibility for a surprise that the market's simply not thinking about. And although uh, policies may move slowly, investor fears can develop quite quickly. Absolutely, Jim. Hey, Jim, thanks so much for sharing us, uh, sharing with us your thoughts here. Jim is an interest rate strategist for FTN Financial based in Memphis, Tennessee, joining us on the phone today, giving us his thoughts kind of across asset classes. It sounds uh, uh, like Jim Vogel uh, continues to be pretty constructive on the markets here uh, in terms of uh, taking, uh, you know, kind of being out there on the risk curve, not pulling back, uh, trying to get a sense across, uh, you know, strategists, fund managers, economists, kind of their view for 2020. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Tara LaChapelle. She covers entertainment and telecommunications. She joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio, and she is out with a stellar column today. It's really awesome. If you want to get a sense and really get a primer for the streaming business and what it's done to Hollywood, I highly recommend uh, you read Tara's column on the terminal and on Bloomberg.com. So, Tara, again, I followed the media industry for about 30 years, and, and by far the biggest disruption that I've seen has been Netflix and the whole streaming concept because it really changed the way people consume media. And Hollywood is trying, and the media industry is trying to react. Tell us what are come some of the key findings in your column. So I think what you know consumers see is how it's changed their own habits, how it's changed uh, some of our entertainment, the way we watch TV, the way creative decisions are made. But in the business world, what's been really interesting is it's driven multi-billions of dollars worth of mergers. So you saw Disney and 21st Century Fox combined. So now Disney owns those studios. AT&T bought Time Warner and HBO. Viacom and CBS have gotten together. Charter, the cable company, bought Time Warner Cable. So it just goes yep. on and on and on and you know little by little when you see one of those deals piece by piece it doesn't really seem like that much of a transformation but I think when you look at the long list of what's happened in the last decade you start to see how drastically it really has changed and how it's really because of kind of like one company Netflix causing all of this yeah there's a great graphic that you have in your column that it's called you know disappearing act and it basically just compares the kind of the big media companies that were in the marketplace in 2010 versus today, and the list is almost half of what it was, uh, you know, back in the day. So, is there any sense of 
whether any of these media companies can really compete against Netflix? Well, it's funny because I was looking at the market caps for, I think it was the 10 biggest media giants right now. And all of those combined are still smaller than Apple, for example. Apple's got an over a trillion dollar market cap. So I think that tells you right there that the scale, it kind of puts it into perspective that even Disney, after doing all these deals, is still small compared to the tech giants. On the other hand, I think Disney is one of the sort of the best equipped to weather this. And maybe you feel the same. You know, they have uh, the Disney Plus app, which had a really good launch. A lot of people seem to like it. They're really investing in content for streaming, more so than I would have expected for a company that has its profits so tight to traditional television. So I think some of these companies, they do have a lot to prove, but when it comes to content, you know, HBO, Disney, they know great content and it's going to come down to that. So I think we'll see, you know, what happens over the next year. Maybe Netflix starts to feel some pressure of that. You mentioned uh, a big tech and um, I'm interested in what your sources are telling you because we, we've seen big technology companies, whether it's Amazon or Apple or you know, Google with Facebook kind of, I would car, you know, argue is just kind of dipping their toe in the content business and the video business. Is there any sense that maybe 2020 we'll see them really jump into the deep end of the pool as it relates to video programming? Yeah, I'm really curious to see what Apple does specifically because I think right now it's been really vague. You know, it's like they have the Apple TV Plus app. The content didn't really get rave reviews, but they're spending a lot of money. But on the other hand, there's not really enough on there, you know, to replace television, for instance. You know, when you go on a Netflix, there's just sort of an endless scroll of things you can watch, whether you like all the content or not. Apple had like a handful of shows you could watch. So I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, if if this is successful for them and getting more people to buy Apple devices, maybe they go out and buy a studio. I know some other people disagree and think this is just sort of a loss leader for them as a way to get get more iPhones and iPads into people's homes. Uh, so I guess we'll see, but I, I always see, tend to err on the side of these companies like to do deals yep. and it seems really important to them. And I think we're going to see more of those. Any idea, one of the pet peeves that Tom Keene has is he thinks he's subscribing to like 10 or 11 different streaming services. How many streaming services do you think the market can bear maybe. Yeah, I think that's going to have to change. I mean, most people can't afford to subscribe to multiple apps, you know, more than a handful. They get very expensive and especially with the cost of internet. And I think what we'll see happen is companies like Comcast and Charter, for example, will try to bundle some of these services. I think they see that this is a big consumer pain point. And when there is something like that, there's an opportunity, a business opportunity. So I think some of these companies, including Amazon and Apple, will look to try to bundle these, you know, not just put them all in one place, where you can subscribe to them, but also pay in one spot and maybe pay one bill every month and not have to subscribe to them individually to get all the content you need. That kind of sounds like a cable company. Exactly. <laughs> we're bringing back cable. <laughs> but we're still seeing cord cutting. We had uh, Craig Moffat on from Moffat Nathanson on a couple of weeks ago, and he was out with his uh, research showing that cord cutting is not only continuing, it's actually accelerating. So kind of it goes to your point, Tara, the, uh, the move towards streaming, it is in full force and probably accelerating in 2020. Tara LaChapelle, entertainment and telecommunications columnist for uh, Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You can read more on this and other stories from Bloomberg Opinion. They have great stuff every day really makes you think you can go to bloomberg.com slash opinion or you can go to the terminal by typing in o-p-i-n uh, go and i think the real issue as tara pointed out in her column is uh, streaming wars are heating up uh, they really kind of started in earnest arguably in 2019 but they're really going to accelerate here uh, in 2020 we're going to see how disney plays it out we're going to see uh, Time Warner, uh, AT&T Time Warner come to the marketplace uh, with a, a more robust product, uh, Comcast with their Peacock. So uh, it's only going to get uh, more aggressive out there. So get ready. 
Taking a look at the housing market here is a really you know been fairly strong over the years and you would expect that with interest rates so low uh get a sense of kind of how things are playing out across the country in the housing market we welcome our good friend logan uh, moat shami senior loan officer for amc lending group based in irvine california so logan just give us kind of a snapshot of kind of what you're seeing in the housing market uh, right here as we end 2019 well lower mortgage rates did their thing um, you know, last year, you know, we had a monthly supply spike in new home, uh, in new home sales sector. People were thinking housing might have peaked. But as soon as uh, the 10-year yield started going down, really by May of this year, uh, the housing market just got back to its normal, traditional uh, cycle trend, very slow and steady. The existing home sales market, even though it's going to be slightly negative year-to-date, has been keeping uh, sales above five million for some time now. But really the most important factor for 2019 going into 2020 is that the monthly supply for new home sales have come back down. New home sales are up, that's good for the economy, that's good for housing, that means housing starts, construction job. That right there was really the story for 2019 and it should continue into 2020. As long as the 10 year yield doesn't get near 2.62% or higher, uh, the new home sales sector and the, ha- and the existing home sales sector should have legs for slow and steady growth. Logan, give us a sense of uh, new home uh, construction. And we've heard there's some, some reports that it's just not that much supply uh, kind of at the lower end of the market. Is that something that you're seeing? Here's what I disagree with everybody at America. What is an affordable house that a builder can build, right? If an affordable house is either a rental, a multifamily construction, or a condo, because if you're asking for the builders to build affordable housing, they'll never do it, right? Because they're a bigger, more expensive home. So I'm not a big fan of this, well, they have to build for the lower end. Anything they build on the single-family side is going to be more expensive. So the builders have long-term issues in terms of are they going to be able to provide a product that the home buyer can afford or is willing to pay for? And I think that's a multi-decade issue for them out here. So I'm not a big fan of using their wall, they just don't build enough lower end. Anything they build on an apples-to-apples basis is going to be more expensive than this massive existing home sale market that just has more supply, cheaper homes, and more spread out geographically. But as long as new home sales can grow, because housing starts are low and new home sales are so low, you can get that slow and steady growth, and that's good for the economy because it just means more construction jobs, means more domestic spending out here. But it all revolves around can new home sales grow from this level on. So give us a sense, Logan, any regional changes or areas that we should be concerned about? Because we think about, you know, going back to the financial crisis in the kind of the 07 period, 06, 07 period, and we really saw some real estate markets that, you know, even, you know, obviously with hindsight, you know, whether it's Miami or, you know, Las Vegas, really kind of feeling seriously overheated. Do we have any of those issues in the marketplace here? Here's the thing. Price doesn't necessarily mean it overheated. Uh, a housing sector. I mean, you could look at California. California is always considered a hot housing market. Sales have gone nowhere for 10 years, really, if you look at the data. When interest rates rise, those areas, the coastal areas, the high-cost metros, those are the only areas that only get hit. We saw this in 2013 and 2014. We saw this in 2018 and 2019. Except every single time the 10-year yield has gone lower, lower mortgage rates bring those demand back up to par. So you always want to be careful of hot coastal priced areas out here. But if you look at the housing bubble, existing home sales was at 5.72 million, or excuse me, 7.26 million. And then uh, new home sales were over a million back then. So we have no overheated 
demand markets out there in America right now. Uh, purchase application data is only at 1998 levels, I hear. But we're always going to have an issue that when mortgage rates get to 4.75 or 5%, the high-cost areas do get hit, supply increases, and the market slows down a little bit. It's just not enough velocity to be a crash. Nothing, nothing like that should happen in 2020. So, Logan, give us a sense of what's going on in the uh, residential mortgage market in terms of quality. Are, are we seeing, you know, still a focus on quality? Because, again, another concern coming out of the financial crisis was, you know, the, the, the lenders had a role to play in kind of the overheating uh, housing market. Where are we in kind of underwriting standards right now and credit quality, would you say? The best home loan profile ever in U.S. history. You know, that's yep. that's. That's the one benefit that we got from the financial crisis is that we just lend to the capacity for people to own the debt. It's not a tight, people think a lending is tied to America. It's absolutely not. It's still very liberal. But the people that get homes actually make money. They, they can handle the debt payments. All it is is late cycle lending will happen at some point. It just means that you know people that buy homes late in the year with a very low down payment, when they go into a recession and they lose their jobs, those are the only at-risk uh, homeowners uh, uh, when the next recession happens, but everything else looks excellent. Fixed flow debt payments, uh, a lot of nested equity. Uh, there's no exotic debt structures left in, in the system, not once. They all kind of went away in 2010. So we have a decade, an absolute decade of quality homeowners, and now we're going into the biggest and most prominent demographic patch ever recorded in U.S. history. Ages 26 to 32 are the biggest right now in America. First time median home buyer age is 33. So you have replacement buyers in this decade where we were just working through that level from 2008 to 2019. So the, the fundamentals of housing look solid. It's just not going to be a record-breaking, booming, hot cycle that some people might forecast. But you got the demographics and you got the quality homeowners this time, two things that weren't with us in 2006 to 2008. Hey, Logan, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Logan, Logan uh, Moltishami, uh, Senior Loan Officer for AMC Lending Group based in Irvine, California, giving us a, a very constructive view of the U.S. Uh, housing market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz 1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.